Hello, this is a special episode of Lodcast, focused on diversity and inclusion. This month, we had International Women's Day with the theme of hashtag break the bias. So to explore this essential topic, I was thrilled to be joined by Neeti Nataraja. Neeti was most recently Senior Counsel at Philip Morris International, with previous experience at Allen & Overy and City. She is a tireless advocate for equality and helping to shift the legal profession away from an old-school culture into a much broader and welcoming forum. In this episode, we talk about the challenges presented by gender bias and explore practices that legal teams can do to achieve a more inclusive workplace. In our wide-ranging discussion, we hone in on the problems caused by the billable hour model, the importance of leaving work loudly, adding meaning to out-of-office messages, the power of demystifying leaders, the role of mentoring the profession, and the need to check your language. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Hi, Nidhi. What does International Women's Day and this year's theme of Break the Bias mean to you? So I think for me, Break the Bias is all about challenging our own biases uh, because we all have biases, uh, whether they be biases about gender, about you know the roles that we each have in society, uh, biases about skin colour potentially, all sorts of biases. And I think Break the Bias is really about us looking within and mm-hmm. challenging our own biases and recognising them as well for what they are. Great. And and so this year's theme also asks for, for gender bias in particular to be called out and, uh, and for us to work towards uh, inclusivity. Have you experienced or observed gender bias in your professional life? And, and did you call it out? Were you able to call it out? What was what was your experience? Yeah, look, absolutely. Look, I think it 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 is something I've seen quite a lot of through my career and in, in many different ways. But I think the one that really stands out to me and the one that I've observed a lot uh especially through my own, you know, interactions with friends as well, is the biases that uh, become part of your reality when you become a working mother or when you become a mother and you're also, you know, working in the legal profession. So some of the ways I think that that manifests itself are the assumptions that people make about what you as a woman might want from your career post having children. So I think often there are assumptions made that because you're now a mother, you want to take a step back from your career. And that's not always the case. Um, Often women are now the primary breadwinners in their families. And so it's very important for them to continue to work and continue to earn the income that they were earning before. In the same way, on the flip side, there are now many men, and probably have been for some time, it's just not been acknowledged, many men that want to take a more active role in parenting their children. And so perhaps the arrangement in one family might look very different from the arrangement in another family. And so I think that's something I think we really do need to start challenging because particularly I think in the legal profession but also in other similar professional you know, industries, you do see a lot of women leaving in that sort of, you know, I guess that age bracket of around the 30s where women are likely, possibly, not likely, possibly going off to have children or trying to have children. And 
I think it's something we need to acknowledge. You know, why is it that this is the case? What is happening for these women in organisations at that point in time, which is leading them to leave uh, those organisations and perhaps do something completely different, perhaps become an entrepreneur, you know, because in doing so, they then lose some of the benefits that they have Mm -hmm. being an employee uh, in you know an employee of a corporate organization, for example. So I think for me that's that's one of the really big ones I think we really need to address. I think there are other instances as well that I've seen, you know, uh, being in meetings and not being heard or being interrupted or talked over, I think is is fairly common and I've seen it quite a bit. And I think people often don't, uh, or the men in the room often don't un- realize that they're actually doing it. Uh, because they just don't see it. Uh, But I think, you know, again, we need to, particularly now that we're in hybrid uh, work arrangements, think about how that manifests in meetings and how we can ensure that everyone has a voice in that meeting and that the ideas that a woman might bring to the table are actually heard and acknowledged as being her ideas. Because I've definitely seen instances where a woman says something and then a man repeats it. Mm. And it's like, oh, yes, that's a fantastic idea. (laughs) Hang on. Didn't she say that two seconds ago? (laughs) So I think, yeah, I think that's something we need to get better at. And I think that's a leadership issue, right? Like I think as leaders in organisations, we need to step up to the table and really work on how we can include everyone's voice. Great. And I think, like, going back to your your first point around the assumptions people often make around um, females returning to the work, workforce after having a baby, it's, it's certainly true that it's not true that people do that for men. So when men return from having, you know, their family having a child, no one assumes that they're taking their foot off the pedal for their career uh, and that's, mm-hmm. You know that's often wrongly, uh, or, you know, or, or rightly. It's just it's it is interesting that there's this entrenched assumption around those gender roles. But I do, and I, and I do think it's it is getting better, certainly amongst um, you know my generation. So people in the early mm-hmm. to mid thirties now, a lot of the men that I know are starting to take a bit more of an active role. And I think you're right. I think that has happened previously, but it was never really acknowledged, or it was maybe even frowned upon, or thought of as a bit weird. Um, so it's great that that's not happening. I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, in the same way, even through a child's life, you know, there'll be numerous occasions where, you know, there's an event at school, for example, right? Mm. And a father might want to attend that event just mm. as much as a mother might want to attend the event. And I think in workplaces, and this is not just uh, about legal you know, legal right. organisations or legal firms, it's it's about organisations in general. I think we need to get better at acknowledging that, you know, people want to be present in their children's lives uh, regardless of gender mm. and that as a result we need to facilitate for that for both because the more we facilitate it for men and women, the more likely we are to see society's expectations around gender roles and gender stereotypes shift and change, which is exactly what you're saying, you know, things are starting to shift, things are starting to change. We just need to keep moving in the right direction. So moving on now from, I guess, 
your observations of gender bias, what are some of the biggest challenges that you have faced as a woman in the legal profession? Because no doubt there are many, but uh, are there any you would like yeah. to highlight? So I think one thing uh, that was definitely a challenge for me uh, was very early on into my career in private practice, I identified that I didn't really resonate with the way that some of the senior women I was seeing in the organization were juggling work and parenting. And so, mm. you know, either you had women who were not present at home at all and had nannies looking after their kids, which is fine, and I'm not judging people that do that at all, but that was one reality. And the other reality was that uh, women were suddenly uh, not doing the same types of work that they were doing before, particularly in transactional areas, which was my experience and my expertise when I was in private practice, all of a sudden you could only do certain types of tasks because you were potentially considered to not be available for that entire Mm. time, right? And so for me, even early on in my career, in my 20s, I had said to myself, I don't see myself having children whilst working in private practice. And so as a junior lawyer at the age of 20, you know, 3, 24, whatever it was at the time, to be saying that when I wasn't planning to have children anytime soon, mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 a reality I think that law firms need to address. They need to think about ways in which they can assure women that they can continue to have a flourishing career in a law firm, if that's what they want, whilst also being able to be present as a parent in their kids' lives. And it's a difficult balance, but somehow I think that's something we really do need to address because it is it is challenging. And so, you know, before we when we, when we were speaking about the assumptions that are made, you know, you might be ambitious, but you might also still want to be present in your kids' lives, right? Yeah. It's not a matter of it being an either-or. And mm. we often talk about having it all, and having it all is a bit of a it's a bit of a generic statement because I think you have to identify what your all means, right? Because mm. you can't necessarily have it all, but you can have it all in the way that you want it, right? You know, you have to yeah. identify what that looks like. So I think that for me is definitely something that I experienced early on and it was one of the primary reasons why I left private practice. I just didn't see how it was compatible with having kids and it wasn't the only reason. There were other reasons, of course, but it was definitely a big, big reason why I left and, you know, I think in-house in that way is much better from a lifestyle perspective because whilst you might be busy through the day, Mm. you can generally put pens down at the end of the day and be home, right? So the amount of time you might spend working outside of hours is on the whole going to be less than in private practice and a lot more predictable and manageable because you do Mm. it in the way that you wish to do it Mm -hmm. rather than as dictated by a clients' needs or, you know, uh, deadlines, for example. That's a, I mean, it's a really uh, insightful um, reflection and it's a really sad indictment really on the private practice and it's going to be a talent problem, right, if, if the, all these, you know, super talented young women uh, uh, 
very early on making a calculation that this is not long-term because they see it as fundamentally incompatible with the family life that they would like. I mean, that's, I mean, hopefully, and I imagine it is getting better, but that is, you know, that is, that's a challenge because I also don't think um, young men would have that observation at, at the same time. I think they would be entering and saying, no, I could definitely do this until I want to retire. So it, yeah, that's, it's a really good observation and it's, it's, I think for them it's it's a problem because um, they're missing out on on talented lawyers right I, I agree I think look I, I think there are two things in what you said I think firstly where it comes to young women and what they're thinking of I've had numerous conversations over the last couple of years with uh, students with young lawyers who are questioning, where they go in their career and thinking about in-house now more than private Mm. practice. And I think one of the reasons is this concern about, you know, what is the lifestyle? How am I going to do and do it all? How am I going to have a family down the track if I'm in uh, these high-pressure, demanding, time, you know, consuming, not consuming is the wrong word, but you know what I mean, um, roles at my time, right? Everything is about work and everything else comes second. And so I think that that definitely is a reality. And I think women are starting to think about it earlier and earlier. And I would also say, I think young men are now starting to think about this more and more. And I think as a result of the pandemic, I think that's been a wake up call for many people in terms of, you know, the, I guess, you know, the fact that life is short, the fact that you've got to live life as you want to live it, which includes, your, you know, your loved ones, includes the time you spend looking after yourself, you know, exercising self-care, etc. you know, looking after your mental health. So I think even young men nowadays are likely to be mm. having the same thoughts around is this lifestyle going to work for me in the long term. And I think as a result, law firms in particular need to start thinking about how they can address what might otherwise be a talent glut in the mm. years to come. Yep. No, the, I, I totally agree. Um, and I think we, we could probably talk about that particular topic f- for ages, but <laughs> I think we're going to um, <laughs> move on um to, to thinking about maybe leadership a bit more. So, you know, we've been talking for decades, we being the, the legal industry and, and various pundits about gender bias in the workplace, and, and plenty of studies have shown that mixed gender leadership teams can boost companies' profit, profitability. So why do you, like, knowing that, why do you think that bias is, is still an issue today? Ah, oh, so many reasons. Uh, so I think number one, we still don't have diversity at, you know, within the top ranks of these organisations. So I think that's that's the first thing. You know, I remember being a law student, starting off my law degree back in the late 90s. And at the time, the dean uh, of my university, which was Melbourne Uni, said, you know, this is the first year we have more female law students in the intake than we do male law students. Now, despite that ratio, that doesn't translate 
in the senior levels of law firms. So even the younger partners that are coming through, you've got less female partners in general, and I'm generalizing. It could be different at different law firms, obviously. Mm. But generally you have um, you've still got more men in those senior roles than you do women. And so I think that's number one because I think you do need representation. So once you have representation in those top tiers of organisations, whatever the organisation is, that's going to filter through into the way people look at employees, the way people treat employees, the policies and processes and systems that you have in place as well, right? So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is just some systemic issues. So I think the, you know, and I could talk about this for a long time, but I think the billable hour model uh, is is such a problem when it comes to these biases because it it promotes inefficiency, it promotes presenteeism, it promotes people being seen. And, you know, we get back to, I guess, you know, stereotypes around women and men and who does what at work, who does what at home, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is shifting those roles that men and women are taking on in at home, that's not going to change overnight, right? And it's, I think, naive to think that it's going to change overnight. So whilst it's not going to change overnight, we then need to think about what are the systems that we have in place in organisations that then disadvantage women, right? So I think one of those is the billable hour, you know, and this idea that you need to be seen to be at the office until mm. eight o'clock at night, because if you're not there at eight o'clock at night, what on earth are you doing? Like I remember the fear of being in my office at private practice and like, and going, Oh, I'm going to leave at five 30 tonight. That's a bit scary. How, how do I get to the door without being seen? You know? <laughs> and it is, it's literally, you know, the fear that you have of people are going to judge me for leaving earlier but then you know if you do go on to have kids and not all women do but if you do go on to have kids that becomes really challenging because now you have to be out Mm. you don't have the choice of you know I can stick around or whatever else it is and it's the same for men right for men who want to be involved fathers it's exactly the same right Mm. they may have an arrangement at home which says I'm going to be the one that picks up the kids I'm going to be the one that drives to childcare at 5.30, right? So they're going to have the same thing going through their head when they're leaving at 5.30. And so I think one of the wonderful things I saw, uh, I can't remember which organisation it was, it's quite some years ago now, which I loved, was this idea of leaving loudly, right? Mm -hmm. And leaders going, I am leaving to go and pick up my kids. I'm out the door now because I need to... I don't know, I'm going to go and have a massage, you know, whatever it is, right? Yeah. You know, encouraging people to, I guess, feel that they have permission to do the same thing that the leaders are doing in the organisation. And so one of the things I've started doing in the last few years, again, an idea I, I pinched from someone else, um, a blog I think I read, is with my out of offices, 
not just putting on a standard out of office, but actually saying in my out of office why I'm going to be out of the office. So last year I took a week off because it was my daughter's birthday and it was school holidays. And during the pandemic, my son had been home because he's two and a half. He'd been home throughout the entire thing. And so I'd had very little time just with my daughter since he was born. And so I said to her, I'm going to take a week off and we're going to spend the week together, right? Your brother will be at childcare. My hub, my hubby was at work. So we're going to have a week together. And in my out of office, I made it clear that that's what I was doing. I was taking the week off to spend time with my daughter, right? And I think the more we can do that, the more we allow other people in the organization to do the same thing. So I think it's important whether you're in private practice, in in-house roles, whatever it is, that the leaders in those organisations are taking those steps to provide psychological safety to others. I think that's really powerful and I'm mentally just going through my out-of-office at the moment thinking about what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that, that is really powerful and I think the, you know, for my reflection of a short time in private practice is that the presenteeism, which I think has naturally been well disrupted by by COVID anyway, but that was a real problem. And I remember people strategizing as a as a graduate, I'll leave my, you know, I'll leave my um blazer on the back of the chair so I could be coming. You know, that kind of stuff was quite common, like the strategizing, which was kind of funny at the time, but actually is quite sad really. Um yes. so that, that definitely resonates. Um Okay, well, maybe we can talk about um, now as a, as a female leader, um, what, is, what is one thing that you choose to do to make workplaces or communities more inclusive or, or equal? Mm, so there are a number of things. I think one of the things I did through the pandemic uh, was, so I returned after maternity leave, literally as COVID was starting, and so I had a seven-month-old baby and a remote schooling grade one um, child at home. And so one of the things I made sure I did at that time was put my video on, regardless of what was going on in my house at the time, regardless of whether I was, you know, giving my son a bottle, uh, changing his nappy. Didn't show them, obviously, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know whatever I was doing, I had the camera on because I think, one of the things that's important to do is to show people that just because I'm a senior leader, my life isn't different from your life, right? Mm. And I've got things that I'm juggling too. The juggle is real for me as well. And I think it also shows other people, other leaders that, you know, there is a different reality for many people. And so, when you're thinking about the way you interact with your team members, it's about really doing it with that reality in mind. You know, everyone's reality is slightly different, but at least this way you're showing people that there is a juggle and we need to be mindful of people's juggle and acknowledge it, right? And so I think that for me is very powerful. I think the other thing I like to do a lot of nowadays is is mentoring and I think it's important as a senior woman leader to give back and to support mm. other women through the organisation and, you know, the, the power of having other people that support you and that can also um, help you have your voice heard is 
is enormous, right? It, it really can help. And so when I've been in meetings or in teams where, you know, there are fewer women, for example, often I think what's really effective is when you can have that understanding with the other woman in the room to say, you know, if I'm trying to have my voice heard and I'm not being heard, you're going to help me and vice versa, hmm. you know, so even just pointing out, oh, I think, you know, X was trying to say something. I think the um, your point around demystifying a leader's life or like, you know, I think often when you're a more junior person, you think of bosses and the senior leadership as almost these mythical, slightly robotic creatures. Uh, and I think it's really powerful to say, nope, still messy human, lots of stuff going on in my life. <laughs> I think that's really actually, actually really powerful, um, which leads us actually to, to, to the next question around um, any advice you might have for current female junior lawyers or, or professionals where gender bias is present? So obviously you've talked about the coaching and mentoring that you do, uh, men- mentoring rather, um, what is some of the advice that you might give to a, to a junior female trying to, you know, navigate those challenges? Yeah, I think finding someone who can support you in the organisation is really important. So really looking for someone who is potentially that little bit more senior than you and that can provide you with that guidance and also be a voice for you as well in the organisation. I think that's really critical. Now, I think the other thing is really identifying what you want. I think sometimes we feel stuck as human beings and, uh, you know, if if someone is really facing a whole lot of gender bias and they're in a workplace that isn't working for them, I think remembering that there are options is also a really powerful thing to do. You know, Mm -hmm. you do have options, right? Um, So, yeah, I would say finding a support network perhaps looking externally if you don't have an internal support network. So going to someone and talking to someone about the things that you're facing and how you can potentially, you know, build up your own self-confidence and build up a profile for yourself, which means that you don't need to rely on these gender biases that are existing and this narrative that's being created. You can control your own narrative to a certain extent. I think we often feel that we're at the whim of other people in the organization that are more senior to us, but you can, you can control your narrative. You know, you, you can do things to start promoting yourself. Um, and I think this is not in the context of gender bias, but that's been part of my journey for the last couple of years is really building a personal brand for myself so that my narrative is told by me. Right. And it's a narrative that transcends an organization as well. I mean, I, I really agree with that. And I think sometimes there won't be that internal network, as you say. And I think relying on external networks can sometimes be actually really healthy because you can get that perspective, uh, which isn't, you know, because sometimes industries can be quite uh, peculiar in how they manage things. And, and you and then you eventually think that that's a normal behavior. And then you might say it to a friend who's, you know, an engineer or they're a doctor or whatever, you know, or, or you know, a plumber. And they say, that's really strange behavior it's like that's not that's not normal um so i think that's it's really important the point around networks uh i think is really important um okay the the kind of last full question if i may call it that was um is what do you think the legal the legal profession can do to greater educate 
people around gender biases and what action can they take? And obviously, International Women's Day this month, and there's a bunch of activity around that. But I think more, you know, at a more sustainable long-term view, what are some actions do you think they can take? So I think the first thing law firms or any player in the legal profession should do is really look internally at the data that they have, you know, look at retention, look at attrition, look at what's going on, at what time are women leaving, are they leaving, are they staying, you know, what are the timings of of when things are seemingly going wrong if they are going wrong? So that for me is number one, right? Because once you've got the data, you can then start looking at that particular subset and, you know, exit interviews, you know, focus groups, et cetera, to really listen to people and understand what is going on for them. Now, there is, a, I guess, a limitation with all of those sort of things in that people may not say everything they want to say because there is a, um, a power dynamic at mm. play, right? But, you know, I think that's really the place to start. Now, training in bias related issues is a difficult one because I think it's important. I think it's very important, but it's often um, the case that you'll do a piece of training like unconscious bias training and then it'll go out the window, right? Mm -hmm. Because you hear it, you go, "Mm, that makes a lot of sense, you know. Yes, I need to be mindful of this and then it's forgotten. So I think if organisations are going to invest in training, you need to think about then how you can follow up on that training and make it a continuous training program rather than a training program that lasts for two days and is then over. Mm. I think that's really important. And, and actually it's it's interesting because there are a lot of um, organisations out there now that do unconscious bias training through vir- virtual reality, which is, mm. I think, a really interesting and powerful way to do it because for example, and this is not gender, but if you think about, say, disability, for example, you know, your position, you're sitting in in virtual reality in a wheelchair. So mm. you actually have that understanding of the height differential. So when someone is standing up, what does that actually right. feel like for you in that moment that this mm. person is standing up, right? And the same thing might be true of, you know, I don't know, being interrupted in meetings, for example, or things like that. And you you experience that through virtual reality, right? So I think there are newer and more innovative ways to Mm. do unconscious bias training nowadays, which I think organisations can really look at and try and um, leverage in their own organisations. Other things, I think language, the language that we're using in job ads in policies how Mm. are they perpetuating biases so you know the one I like to talk about quite a lot is this um one around parental leave right you know are you calling it parental leave are we calling it maternity leave Mm. are you referring to primary caregivers and secondary caregivers because that assumes that one person has the bulk of the responsibility and the other one's just there every so often, Mm. right? So that's playing into the societal assumptions around the typical nuclear family, which isn't the typical nuclear family anymore, right? And things Mm. have changed. So I think looking at language I think is important. Um, And I think then calling it out and and encouraging people to call it out, now that's going to be hard because I think often if you're in 
a demographic where you're potentially impacted by gender bias um, or whatever the bias is, racial bias, whatever it is, you're less likely to call it out yourself. Mm. And so I think it's almost the other people in the room that need to be aware of it and call it out as and when they see it. Um, because I, I remember a conversation I was in some some time ago and we had this discussion around um, with some colleagues around sexual harassment, right? And if you saw an instance of sexual harassment as a towards a woman, as a woman, would you feel comfortable calling it out in that moment? And some of the women were like, no, I wouldn't because it, it th- it's threatening to me, right? And so it's it's almost then in those circumstances men in the room that need to stand up and go, hey, that's not okay. Hmm. And that's why I think it's even more powerful, say if a woman's being interrupted or if she's trying to get a word in and she's not able to, it's very powerful when a guy in the room says, hey, I think so-and-so was trying to say something. And I've had that happen to me a few times because, you know, I think importantly there's an intersectional overlay to gender bias as well. And, you know, I come from a culture Mm. where women are generally more softly spoken, and that's true of a number of different cultures around the world. And so my voice can be softer than other voices, right? So when I'm trying to get my my voice heard, it can be mm. harder sometimes, right? And mm. I don't want to be rude about it, so I'm not going to jump in. Um, and so sometimes I've had men in the room say, I think Niti's trying to say something, you know, or Niti, what were you, what, what were you wanting to say? I think it looked like you were trying to say something. And that is powerful. So I think being training managers to be aware of these sorts of things is important. Absolutely. And the the two things which came to my mind as you were saying those things, one around language was that um, real anachronism around dear sirs when referring to law firm. Um, yes. That just, I can't believe that's only changing at the moment for some law firms. It's crazy to me. And then the, you know, I'm conscious, I'm, generally speaking, a loud white male. So I, I, I need to, you know, often be careful uh, in not necessarily in meetings. I think, you know, I think people are you know, generally better these days. But often it's it's the stuff where, you know, you might say, hey, guys, let's do this. And actually that's not the right term. And, and often I find myself just asking some of my female colleagues, like, what, how would you how would you react if I did this? And then getting their feedback and then using that to, to, I guess, have more inclusive language and, and behaviour um, because I think you're right. I think it's it's on everybody to make the workplace better. It, it's not, you know, we're not, no, you know, no one should have to be a martyr. It should be a kind of a collaborative progression really. Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, it's, it's as much on, on men as it is on women. Um, well, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, were you going to say I something? Was, I was- Yeah, I was just going to say, actually, just on that point around, hey, guys, you know, that's something I found my, like, I've had to correct myself on doing as well from time to time, because I do default to that as a, you know, as slang and as colloquialism almost, right? And so I think, you know, for language, I think it's something that both, you know, that we all need to be aware of. It's not just that men need to be aware of it more than women, for right. example, I think we, there are things as women, I think we could do better for ourselves as well, right? And I think the language that we use is important. So even, you know, uh, 
someone I think the other day uh, said to me, you know, even the term wor- working mum is uh, is a little bit difficult, right? Because what does that actually mean? We don't talk about working dads. So mm. why do we talk about working mums, right? And so sometimes it's even a matter of looking at the language that we use and flipping it in reverse. So if you wouldn't say it about a guy, why are you saying it about a woman, right? Mm. So, yeah, so, you know, because there's a lot of that sort of language out there at the moment too, like she boss, shepreneur. Oh yeah, I don't know all sorts of um, yeah. all sorts of language that's crept into our vernacular, and I think it can be really dangerous when we start doing that. Um, so yeah, I think we all need to be aware of language. Yeah, it. and I think language is a tricky one because it's often so ingrained that you find yourself doing it, and without you know, without the training that you were talking about earlier, without um, continuous training. It's difficult Mm. to, I mean, like anything in life, like you've got to practice at it to get better. And if you don't, you know, work that muscle, so to speak, you know, there's not much chance that you'll, you'll long-term improve. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's, it's such a big topic, diversity and inclusion. Obviously we, we focused on certain elements of it, but um, did you have any, um, before we, before we wrap up, um, did you have any final thoughts or I guess comments about this topic or about or or about your career? Look, I think the main one is just, you know, really looking within and just challenging what your own biases are. Um, none of us are perfect. We all have biases. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're called un- unconscious or subconscious biases for a reason. We're not always or we're not often aware of them. So I think it's really being mindful of the ways that things might manifest. And if someone calls you up on something, I think before jumping to defensiveness, I think it's important to really sit back and go, hang on, is there anything in this? And is there something I can be doing differently? Um, Because I think our automatic reaction as, as humans is to defend our behavior um, or the language that we've used or whatever it is, right? But sometimes there's actually truth in what's being said to us and I think we do need to sometimes sit back from it and go, okay, you know, could I have done that differently? What could I have said differently? How would have different words landed with that person? And ensuring that the next time that situation comes up or, you know, if it's not the next time, the one after that, you know, that we, we're trying to we're trying to improve continuously. Brilliant. Um, thanks. Thanks so much for sharing all that with us today. It's been really uh, fascinating, insightful and, and sometimes, you know, challenging, I think, for a lot of listeners. Hopefully they'll go away and, and take a few, you know, whether it's a different out of office or whether it's checking their language or whether it's in a meeting, taking note of who's trying to speak and who might not be able to. I think there's lots of things that we can all do. Uh, And thank you so much for, I guess, throwing a light on all those issues. No worries. 